Uh, Heavenly Father, we know that a lot of our classmates and, and people in the school are struggling with sickness, and we pray that you would heal their bodies and they would be able to return here and, and not get too far behind. We, um, we also pray that you would protect our health and that you would keep us in, in, in good health. Um, we pray for our school in general in that regard. And we also pray that as we study First um, Corinthians a bit more today, that you would open our ears and our hearts to understand the scripture and that we would be people who have true knowledge, not false knowledge. Thank you for being a God who publishes abroad uh, the truth of the gospel and doesn't just reserve it for the select few. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, the book of Corinthians, First Corinthians, we tried to set context yesterday, all right? Um, Paul is away from this church after ministering there for quite some time. There's a group of people who has kind of come into the church after this and claimed that they have a greater authority than what Paul did, the super apostles. The super apostles are heavily influenced by Gnostic thought, um, which means that they teach... The body is of no importance. The spirit is all that matters. That means that you can kind of do whatever you want with your body with no consequences. God doesn't care about that. And the Gnostics teach that the way to achieve salvation is by accessing something called Gnosis, which is where they get their name from, of course. Gnosis is the Greek word to know, but in this context, it has a little bit more of a specific meaning. Gnosis is a type of secret knowledge that is reserved for the worthy. So they can ascend to God. All right, so Gnostics claim, uh, one of the big claims of Gnosticism is that um, Jesus didn't tell the most important things to the 12 disciples. Or that he told the most important things only to the 12 disciples, who only then told it to really, really good Christians, but then they kind of preached a lesser message to the masses. Something along those lines. The Gnostics claim that they have this higher secret knowledge given by Jesus that Paul never had access to. Who is Paul? Did Paul walk with Jesus for three years? Of course not. So why are you listening to Paul? Um, They claim that they are the ones who have inherited this secret knowledge that can help people ascend to God in heaven. And if you want that knowledge, you need to come to them and to no one else. Um, This is not a knowledge that is published abroad or that is preached indiscriminately to all. Remember that Jesus tells the disciples to preach the gospel to who? Just a few people? Everyone. Everyone. It's a public thing. All right. Uh, Jesus's resurrection, by the way, was also a public thing. That's going to be a point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus didn't only appear uh, after his resurrection to a few people. He didn't only appear to the disciples. Revelation, or, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus appeared to over 400 people at one time. Jesus' ministry was public, his preaching was public, his resurrection was public. And so all of this cuts against the grain of Gnosticism, where there's this secret knowledge reserved for only a select few. As we go through this letter, we want to highlight several ways that Paul is combating Gnosticism. And it really starts off 
I mean, really right off the bat with it. Go ahead and open to 1 Corinthians 1. Um, there's a couple of things that I want to point out to you um, in chapter 1, and then we'll start looking at how Paul critiques Gnosticism and tries to protect the church uh, from this error. I was, um, was reading a book yesterday, John Wycliffe. Um, a lot of you guys probably don't know that name, but um, if you know uh, Wycliffe Bible translators, it's, it's, it's named after him. Wycliffe is credited for, um, he, he didn't really do this, but his students did. They, produ- they produced the first English Bible. Wycliffe has a treatise on pastors where he says, pastors have three jobs, basically. They teach and preach so that people can learn the truth of God's word. They heal, meaning in in the context that Wycliffe is using it, there are people who have spiritual ailments. There are people who who are, are hurting, and pastors counsel them. They give them the promises of God, the truth of the scriptures, in order to provide spiritual healing. And then the third thing that pastors do is they defend from wolves. And what is what do wolves mean in that context? Like people like the apostles, like trying to like tell them that God is wrong. Yeah, false teachers, right? Um, so Paul, we see, is is acting pastorally here. Um, this isn't really a pride thing. It's not that he just wants to beat up, beat down the super apostles and show that he's the best and everyone should listen to him. But he believes that what the super apostles are preaching really hurts people. I mean, we can kind of see that. You can see how Gnosticism is very hurtful to people. Um, and so Paul is, is, is concerned with this for that reason. Looking at 1 Corinthians 1, uh, Paul gives an introduction in the first three verses like he does in most of his letters. But notice something that he calls this church. Somebody read verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, and to those sanctified with Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Called to be what? Saint. What does saint mean? Like, <coughs> Saint is, basically means holy ones. Sometimes, um, you know, especially in like the Catholic tradition, you'll get like St. Francis, St. Dominic, something like that. You know, it's kind of reserved for these super, super holy Christians that we should look to as examples. I don't really know if there's anything wrong with that. What we should recognize that all Christians in the scriptures are called God's saints, his holy ones, right? It's not just reserved for the select few like Peter and Paul. It's, it's, it's It's a title given to everyone. Everyone who's in Christ is called one of God's saints, one of his holy ones. Even the church at Corinth. Is that the word that you would have used to open up this letter based on what I told you about Corinth yesterday? Calling someone a Corinthian is an insult. This church has a horrible reputation. Paul opens it up. Are there people in Corinth that probably profess to be believers but aren't? Are there probably people like that there? Sure. He's writing to this church with, with the idea in mind that a lot of these people are what? Saints. Saints. Christians. The meanest and the least believer in the kingdom of heaven gets this title. They can be so filled with sin and corruption, but if they're in Christ, they are a holy one. They are saints. Paul then gives thanks for the church because he does see that even if it's in small ways, God's grace is at work in them. 
And then we start getting some of the issues in this church. Um, someone read verses 10 through 17 for us. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas. Who is Cephas? Peter. Peter. Or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? What Paul was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So, right off the bat, he introduces one issue in the Corinthian church that he wants to address. The, Corinth the city of Corinth is big, so not all of the people addressed in this letter go to like the exact same building for church. All right. What we have in Corinth are these household churches. There's, for example, a, a, a woman um, in this text called Chloe. Chloe is probably a widow who has a lot of money, probably has a big house, a lot of space, and she allows the church to meet in her household. They're called Chloe's people. All right. So this is kind of a, a church in this part of the city. On the other side of the city, there might be another household church. And one of the things that's happening is that the different churches in Corinth, the different little house churches in Corinth, all right, they should all be unified with one another. They're all part of one body, but they've started saying certain things. One church, really big Paul fanboys. Everything they talk about is Paul. Paul, 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 Paul. We love Paul. We follow Paul. Paul said this, and we think Paul's right. We love Paul. There's another church that does the same thing with one of Paul's friends, Apollos. Oh, man, we're the Apollos guys. Apollos rules, man. There's another group of Christians in the city that's like, we're really on the Peter train? Big Peter guys. In fact, we call him Cephas because, you know, uh, he's the rock on which Christ built the church. And then you've got probably... Uh, the way that I'm going to read this, other people read this differently, but the way that I'm going to read it, you got the, the other group that's probably the most annoying ones who say, oh, you guys follow Paul, you guys follow Apollos, you guys follow Peter. We're above all of that. We just follow Jesus. They're the non-denominationals, right? So um, that was supposed to be a joke. None of you laughed. Uh, okay, so um, these groups, though, um, are all... There, there are these different factions. They're all kind of fighting with one another over, you know, this is the person that I identify with. This is the person I identify with. And Paul asks a couple of rhetorical questions. He says, number one, you guys are all divided over which leader you think is best. First question, is Paul divided, or is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? You're supposed to be one body of Christ. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be dividing. Christ isn't divided. Um, and then he says, um, was Paul crucified for you? What's the answer to that? Considering he's writing that letter. Yeah, yeah. Paul wasn't crucified for you. 
Uh, were any of you baptized into the name of Paul? What name were you baptized into? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit into the name of Jesus. So what is he basically telling them about all of this quarreling? It's pointless. It's pointless. Forget it. Right? Like, like, stop. Is there anything wrong with liking Apollos' preaching or Paul's letter writing? No. Is there anything wrong about liking Peter? I mean, I have a soft spot for Peter, right? I mean, you can identify with him. He's very human, right? There's nothing wrong with any of that, but they need to stop fighting. And then in verse 17, he gives another reason why. He, he says, specific, probably Corinth, probably the biggest group out of these are the Paul guys. Paul's the one that's ministered there the longest. And in verse 17, he says, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom. lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now he's going to start kind of alluding to another group in Corinth. What would be the group in Corinth that really emphasizes eloquence and wisdom and knowledge? Hellenists? Gnostics. They're gnosis, right? We're the really wise guys. We're the ones that know the most. You should really listen to us. And Paul says... Christ didn't commission us to, to preach with eloquence, with pretty words and sound really smart. And, and he's actually going to make the argument that whenever he came to Corinth, he did the complete opposite. Let's keep, keep reading. Verse 18, he says, The word of cross is folly to those who are perishing. What he says there is the message that God became a man and died on the cross for your sins sounds idiotic to unbelievers. That's a pretty strong statement. It's folly to those who are perishing, right? You ever thought about that before? Like how, how weird that message is? Like all of us have kind of been raised knowing stuff about Christianity. Can you pretend for a minute that you're hearing it for the first time? There is one God who eternally exists in three persons. The second person of the Trinity, the Son, became a human being, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, and then that God-man died on the cross for your sins 2,000 years ago. Somehow that makes you right with God now. By the way, he was resurrected. He ascended bodily into heaven, and one day he's going to come back and raise all of your bodies from the dead and give you eternal life and a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth. Paul acknowledges here, I recognize that that sounds kind of unbelievable. He says, the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For God wrote, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is knowledgeable? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews always demand signs. Can you remember that from Jesus's ministry? What were they always looking for? Just another miracle. Just another miracle. The Jews demand signs, these, these signs of power and these signs of authority. The Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek after wisdom. You can think about that in Acts. Whenever Paul's going around ministering to the philosophers, like in Athens. But we don't demand signs. 
We don't look for eloquence and wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews. He talked about that in Romans, didn't he? And it seems like folly to Gentiles. But to those who God calls, both the Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. What's he telling the church right there? You're You're pretty unlearned, people. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth, but God chose you. He says in verse 27, God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low, not what is super, not what is above, not what is over, right? He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that aren't, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If Gnosticism is true, it is inherently based on what? Works. Works. I became worthy, I became wise, so I got the Gnosis, and I got saved. What can you do in that system? Bragging on. Yeah. I, 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 I. Paul says the message of the cross doesn't allow you to do that. It's a message of weakness. The Messiah dies. It's a message that sounds foolish. It's a message that you've only believed, according to verse... um, According to verse 30, and then before that, in verses 26 through 31 generally, it's a message that you believed only because of God's work in you. Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, he says in verse 30. God chose you. God called you, he says before that in the previous verses. Well, if God gave you a foolish, unbelievable-sounding message... And the only reason that you've believed it and been saved is because God called you, chose you, and the only reason you've believed it is because of God's work in you. Does that leave any room for basting? It's all by God's what? All, all by grace. You remember that in Romans, a really big argument is that if salvation is by works, you can boast. But since it's by grace through faith, you can't boast. And the way that Paul presents the gospel, the conclusion is always, I can't boast. I can't be proud. I can't brag. And here he's using a similar type of logic to go against Gnosticism. You can't boast. You can't brag. You can't be proud. You can see the weakness of Gnosticism in this. In chapter 2, he continues his tirade against Gnosticism. Somebody read verses 1 through 5. proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
Here's a question. When Paul came to Corinth, does he think he preached well? Like from, from human standards. <clears throat> Whenever Paul came to Corinth, would um, people have flocked to the marketplace and said, wow, what a great public speaker. No. He didn't preach with lofty speech or wisdom. All he did was talk about the crucifixion of Christ. He explains that he was there in weakness, fear, and trembling. You ever seen somebody try to give a public speech? Or like maybe some of your classmates before have had to speak in front of the class and you can tell that they're terrified. Is it hard to watch that? You kind of feel secondhand, like, <gasps> for them, you know? Um, that's what Paul was like. His speech and message were, he, he goes so far as to say that it wasn't even implausible words. My message sounded unbelievable whenever I preached. I didn't even make it sound realistic. But he thinks he preached well, despite all of that. Because the result was that these people believed and they're not resting their hopes on human wisdom. They're not resting their hopes on the ability to win every single argument. They're, they're not resting their hopes on human wisdom or human words, but they're resting their faith on the wisdom and power of God. The only way, Paul is basically saying, the only reason that there was a church in Corinth is because God was at work. I wouldn't have convinced you. I wouldn't have been so charismatic that you believed. Paul couldn't have started a cult. You guys know cult leaders are usually very good speakers, very charismatic. Paul's the opposite of that. The only reason he says that any of you believed is because of God's work in you, because of his grace given to you. So now the Corinthian church is facing an impasse, right? They're being tempted to leave the gospel of Paul and run after these eloquent-sounding, wise-sounding, smart guys who apparently have this secret knowledge. In the beginning, though, of their Christian journey, what got them started wasn't human wisdom or eloquence. It was this. And so Paul is pushing against that again. He's pushing them to remember back to whenever he was there so that they won't be led astray now. He continues down in chapter 2, starting in verse 6. He says, Among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it's written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So Paul says, you know, there is, there is wisdom that we give. As a person converts and as a person grows in the Christian faith, 
they learn more and more about the promises and mysteries and teachings of God. And who really teaches it to them? Is it Paul? Who does Paul say really teaches it to them? The Spirit. The Spirit. Now, according to the book of Romans, what we've already seen about Paul's theology, how many Christians have the Holy Spirit, though? Is it just a select few who are worthy? It's every believer. Every believer has access to the Spirit, and the Spirit knows the full mind of God. He knows the full counsel of God, and then over time, slowly and little by little, he teaches this to believers. Remember, Jesus talked about how the Spirit would be a teacher and would remind the disciples of all the things that Christ had said. And so here, Paul is saying there is kind of this secret hidden wisdom, but don't think that it's reserved for just the best of the best Christians. It's, it's something that God gives to all of those that believe. It's something that he gives to everyone who has the Spirit. We're going to skip over to chapter 4 now. You guys see how he's combating Gnosticism. You see how we have to kind of have some idea of what Gnosticism is to really understand these arguments, right? Um. Over in chapter 4, Paul begins um, to talk about his ministry as an apostle. Now, he has to do this because his credentials have kind of been called into question by these super apostles who say that they're higher and kind of above the apostles. And in chapter 4, he starts off in that first paragraph by talking about how... um, Basically, the super apostles are casting judgment on him. And he says, I, I, don't, I don't even really judge myself. I'm trying to be faithful to what the Lord has commanded me to do. And really, the judgment of me is in God's hands. He goes on and he starts talking about how for the sake of the gospel, he's experienced poverty. He's experienced persecution. He's experienced being called a fool and looking weak and being homeless and having to labor with his hands. If he's been willing to sacrifice that much for the gospel, what does it show about him? What do you think? If he's been willing to sacrifice that much for the gospel, what does it show about him? He believes it. He really believes it. He really believes it's true. If he was a false teacher, and what would he do whenever things got tough? Just give, up. Just give up. And so Paul starts going through, and he's like, okay, my, my credentials as an apostle and as a true teacher are being questioned, but think about what my life has been like since I became a Christian. Did Paul suffer before he became a Christian? He was the one that was doing what? Oh, yeah making other people suffer, right? So he changes his life and he all of a sudden is in this period of really intense suffering and he says, I've been counted a fool. I've been uh, shown to be weak. I've been uh, held in disrepute. Basically, people have slandered me and spoken against me. I've been hungry and thirsty. I've been poorly dressed. I've been buffeted, homeless. I've labored with my hands. I've experienced poverty, imprisonment. He's saying, if you look at these sufferings, you see that I'm really legit about this. Like, I'm really serious about this. And then he contrasts himself with the Corinthians who were going after the super apostles and says, while I'm poor, you guys were rich. While I'm suffering for the gospel, you guys are acting like you're in kingdom come. 
I'm treated like the, he says in verse 13, I've been treated like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. What does scum and refuse mean? Poop. He says, I've been, I've been treated like poop. The word refuse in Greek is a little bit stronger than that. But we're not going to say that word. He's saying, you know, I've been treated so, 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 so horribly. For the sake of what? The gospel of Christ that I've learned. Your teachers who have come in and replaced me, where are the marks on their body? Where is the proof that they are really serious about this? If I was a false teacher, whenever the going got tough, I would get going. You can see that I'm a true teacher because of what I've suffered. But these super apostles who claim to be better than me and more authoritative than me, the only thing that they've ever gotten from religion is benefit. What proof do you have that they're legit? When the going gets tough, what are they going to do? You see how he's kind of throwing down a gauntlet there, a challenge there. He calls the Corinthians to follow him, to not be ashamed of him and of the things that you might have to suffer for the gospel. He says at the end of chapter 4, verse 16, I urge you, be imitators of me. And then he says in verse 18, but some of you are arrogant as though I was never coming back to Corinth. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills it, and I'll find out the talk of these arrogant people, or I'll find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God doesn't consist in talk, but in power. So what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? What's he saying there? I'm coming back to Corinth, and you can either get nice Paul, or you can get what? Angry Paul. Angry Paul. Whenever I come back, we're going to find out if these super apostles actually have a leg to stand on. They have pretty words. Are they all bark and no bite, though? What happens whenever the going gets tough for these people? Do they cave, or do they show themselves to be legit? And after Paul kind of lays down this gauntlet, he's going to start addressing specific sins that he has learned about in the Corinthian church. Sexual immorality, uh, hanging out with prostitutes, uh, going to love feasts, all of this sort of stuff. And that's what we'll talk about more tomorrow. You guys have questions kind of on those first four chapters. You see kind of the flow of Paul's thought. This is really a good introduction to Corinthians. Um, what tone is Paul taking in the first part of this letter? How would you define his tone? Does he sound the same that he did in Romans? Not really. How, what was his tone? Like, as you're reading Romans or any book of the Bible, you should try to kind of figure out what is the author's tone, right? Like, you guys have read in U.S. history before, and you can tell whenever a person is just saying something and whenever he's really mad and saying something, right? Like, you can tell the tone of the author. In Romans, what would you say Paul's tone was? Did he get upset sometimes in Romans? But overall, what was his tone? Yeah, pretty even, right? Especially whenever you get to like chapters 9 through 11 and he's dealing with this question about um, Israel. He's really sympathetic. He's really gentle with the people, right? Like, hey, you're asking this question. That's a good question. 
Um, this is something that bothers me too. Let's walk through it together. That's kind of the tone that you get throughout Romans with him most of the time. Is that the tone that you feel like we're getting in Corinthians? What emotion is coming through this? It's like when you're trying to explain something to your little sibling and they aren't getting it, so you have to raise your voice and they might get it. Frustrated disappointment. Frustrated disappointment. And, and I would say, too, a third one, um, he sounds hurt. He's a, like... I mean, you think about this. He, he suffered for these people. Go back at some point and read what happens to Paul while he's in Corinth. That's the city that he's in where he prays and says, God, I just want to leave. Like he really goes through a dark season as he's ministering in Corinth. It's really, in, in a lot of ways, it's kind of the low point of Paul's ministry, his missionary travels. But he sticks it out. He develops a really, really, really deep love for these people. And then almost as soon as he leaves... They start turning their back on him. They start slandering him. They start going after these super apostles and saying, Psh, who's Paul? And, you know, you can hear that there's a little bit of hurt there. I mean, if you imagine, you know, you have a group of friends here at RCA and then you move away. And three months later, you start finding out that everyone's like, oh, man, we're so glad that she's gone. Oh, she, she's so annoying. Like these people that you thought were your friends, that you thought cared for, you, you start hearing this stuff, you realize that you're going to be hurt by that. And Paul really seems to have that sort of a, an emotion in his voice. There's also just this type of like disbelief. Like how could you do this? Which we're going to hear that in chapter 5 verse 1 where he says, it is actually reported among you that there's sexual immorality of a type that even pagans don't support. It's actually being reported that this is true. You hear the disbelief in his voice. It's not just, it's reported among you that there's you know, sexual immorality. It's actually being reported among you that this is happening? So one thing that makes the Bible a lot more interesting and fun is if you try to read it in that tone. Like if you really are trying to figure out what is his tone of voice here, and then as you, you guys have a voice in your head as you read, let the voice in your head match that tone. And you start realizing the Bible's not just words on a page. Um, it's, it's a very emotionally charged letter. So we'll, we'll talk about that more tomorrow. It's 9.55, so...